When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a wind, a violent wind, came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, the crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, Are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then, then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phygria, Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converted Jews, converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. So amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? But of course, some, however, made much fun of them and said they've had too much wine. Acts 2. Say, my favorite smell in the world, incidentally, is lilacs. So it's even better than pizza or even KFC. And those of you who know me, that's saying a lot. My kids have recently discovered, or I would say rediscovered, the old Looney Tunes cartoons. And many of you will remember them and remember the, these characters Bugs Bunny, Tweety Bird, Sylvester, Elmer Fudd. The Roadrunner, and of course, Wiley Coyote. And though there are always different episodes to the show, there is basically only one storyline that ran through all of those shows. There is one character pursuing an objective and never attaining it. Isn't that right? Elmer Fudd, for years, tried to get rid of Bugs Bunny and never succeeded. Sylvester, for years, tried to have Tweety Bird for lunch and never succeeded. And Wiley Coyote, for years, week after week after week, tried to catch the Roadrunner and he never succeeded. And what was crazy about all this is that these characters, particularly Sylvester and especially Wiley Coyote, they were brilliant. They made intricate and complex plans. They rigged up incredible machines, or they ordered them from Acme. They were masters of disguise. They knew their targets intimately, knew their habits. Wiley Coyote always knew exactly what road the roadrunner would be on and exactly when he was going to be there. Wiley Coyote had, he knew everything that he needed to know in order to succeed. 
He had all the resources that he needed to have at his disposal in order to succeed. But he never actually succeeded. Knew what he needed to know, had everything he needed to succeed, but never succeeded. And a couple of years back, when I studied Acts and this passage in Acts, these Looney Tunes characters came to my mind. Acts is about the church of Jesus Christ as witnesses to Jesus, proclaiming a Jesus who died for the sins of the world and is now risen and alive. And Jesus commissioned his followers to exactly this task a number of times. You will be my witnesses, he said in Acts chapter 1. Go and make disciples of all nations, he said, Matthew 28. Luke 24, repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in my name to all nations. I mean, that is the mission of the church. That is what we exist to be and to do. But it seems to many of us in our day and in our culture to be a roadrunner kind of mission. Always pursued, but never actually attained. Now, church is not about numbers. We know that. But I notice in the book of Acts how often the author of Acts, Luke, by the way, draws attention to numbers. Acts chapter 2, about 3,000 souls were saved. Chapter 4, the number came to about 5,000. So somebody was counting. Somebody was keeping track. Chapter 5, more than ever, believers were coming to the Lord, added to the Lord, multitudes of men and women. Chapter, chapter 6, the number of disciples was increasing. Chapter 6, verse 7, the number of disciples multiplied greatly. Chapter 9, the church multiplied. Chapter 11, a great number turned to the Lord, and so on. The church was growing as it pursued its mission. And the church, by definition, is the community who knows Jesus and makes him known. And the church in Acts was not only doing that, but they were doing it effectively. And not only were they doing it, and not only were they doing it effectively, it was so natural for them. They talked about Jesus all the time. Peter said in chapter three, we, in chapter four, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. We can't help it. We have to talk about Jesus everywhere we go and in everything that we're doing. They just did it naturally. It was who they are. In Acts chapter three, Peter and John are going into the temple for the time of prayer, and they encounter there at the gate a lame man who is begging them for alms. And he asks Peter and John for money, and Peter says, well, i got no money, but I'll, I'll give you what I do have. In the name of Jesus, get up and walk. And the man is healed. Now, the church didn't strategize that morning initiatives to reach their neighborhood. They didn't say, okay, we're going to send you out two by two, Peter and John. You go to the temple and you try to initiate five spiritual conversations. And if one of you is talking with somebody, the other person be praying for that person. They, they didn't do that. They just lived. They just walked through their life. And as they did that, they proclaimed, they talked about, they lived the reality of Jesus. They were intentional, certainly, but never forced. And it was never unnatural for them. But it has come to feel unnatural for us, hasn't it? For whatever reason. It could be fear, could be apathy, could be busyness. While we know that we are about making Christ known, somehow it often feels that to do that would be forced. It would be unnatural for us to do that. And like Wiley e. Coyote, the North American church has become a genius 
at mission and evangelism. We order all kinds of stuff from the Acme catalog of evangelism. We order video series. We create outreach events. We're trained to go door to door or to initiate spiritual conversations. We do demographic research to understand non-churched people or this generation or that generation. We've made changes to everything from dress to sermon presentation and music style to the look of our sanctuaries, even to parking and to greeting. And yet the church in North America, far from what we see in Acts, it seems as if numbers are being taken away daily instead of added to the Lord daily. We're getting smaller. We're not being effective. But we here at Thornhill Baptist Church, we increasingly, I think, feel a desire to see people come to Jesus. We're feeling that increasingly because we are loving Jesus better, paying more attention to him, and with that comes a desire in us to see lost people saved. And I think that's one of the signs that God is actually at work in our church these days. We're beginning to care more about the people around us, and we want them to come to know who Jesus is. We long for more of God, and we know that our experience of God actually increases as we make Jesus known to the world around us, as we serve his kingdom, as we love people in the name of Jesus. And so we have that desire to do that. But here's the question then. What should we do in order to naturally and effectively make Jesus known? What was the secret to the success of the early church in Acts? It couldn't be current strategies and tools. And if we count on these things, if we count on this book or this curriculum or this program or this principle to make us suddenly natural and effective at making Jesus known, we'll just become the wily Coyote Baptist Church. We'll be always chasing but never reaching, never really being effective. We'll re-strategize every year with a new mission, a new philosophy of outreach, but we won't really see people encounter Jesus. And so we'll always feel that sense of defeat, of failure, of guilt. So what's the difference between so many churches in our day, programmed and ineffective, and the church that we see in the book of Acts, naturally and effectively missional? Well, the difference, most simply put, is this. That one is a church-driven or self-driven model, and the other is a God-driven model. One is kind of church-centered, self-driven. One is God-driven, because it is by God's Holy Spirit, not by self-effort, that Jesus is made known to the world. And where the Holy Spirit is, the church gets rabidly all about Jesus. And only by the power of the Holy Spirit does the church then naturally and effectively declare Christ to the world with great results. And understanding this is a beautiful thing. Understanding that this is the work of the Holy Spirit, not something that we roll up our sleeves and grit our teeth and try to do. Understanding that is beautiful because it frees us from the sense of defeat that we have at failing at something that we can't do anyway. It frees us from the anxiety of trying to do something that seems awkward and unnatural. And understanding that this is the work of the Spirit gives us hope. 
that the Spirit who both wants to and will bring Christ to people through us will do it in a way that instead of feeling forced and false is entirely consistent with who we are and with our abilities and with our context. So instead of trying to be what we're not and being ineffective at it, by the Spirit we can be who we really are and then see God at work making Christ known to people. And that is the reality that we see all through the book of Acts. And it begins right here in Acts chapter 2. It's one of the most celebrated passages in the Bible. The account of Pentecost and the birthday, in a sense, of the Christian church. The story of Acts is the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the growth of the Christian church from Jerusalem to Rome, the hub of the empire. And again, in Acts 1 verse 8, Jesus told his followers... You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And the beginning of that commission and promise, because it was actually both of those things, Jesus said, you will do this, but he was implying you must do this. It was a command and a promise. The beginning of the fulfillment of that took place in Pentecost. Uh, When I was in college, I played indoor soccer. And we would routinely get to the arena 45 minutes to an hour before the game. And we'd get our uniforms on and we'd hear the pep talk. And we'd go out on the field and we'd warm up the goalie with shots. And we'd loosen up and stretch and exercise. And then at one point when the the referee would blow his whistle. And suddenly everything would come into focus for us. It was game on, we would say. It was time to actually get out and do it. No more preparation. Well, for the disciples, they've spent this period waiting and praying together in unity. But now at Pentecost, it's like the whistle blew and it's game on and the movement is launched and everything comes into focus and it's time to actually get out and do this thing that God has called them to do. And so in this passage in Acts 2, the Holy Spirit comes, fills the followers of Jesus and launches this global mission. Because again, where the Holy Spirit comes... Followers of Christ get missional and powerfully declare Christ to the world with great results. So let's, let's look at this passage together. I hope you have your Bibles and I want you to kind of pace through this with me. Acts chapter 1, which we looked at last week, ends with the followers of Jesus, about 120 of them, in constant united prayer. And Matthias has just been added to the 11 apostles, so now again there are 12. And then chapter 2 begins, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, still praying in one accord. Pentecost was the feast of the Jews in which they celebrated the harvest, which they honored and thanked God at the end of the harvest season. And it was one of three feasts for which Jews from all over would travel to Jerusalem. And it was not unusual for Jews to come to Jerusalem at Passover and stay there for the 50 days through Pentecost. And so at Pentecost, there would be Jews in Jerusalem from all over the Roman Empire. And so on this Pentecost, 50 days after Jesus' resurrection, 10 days after his ascension, the community of Jesus is all in one place when suddenly the Holy Spirit comes on them in power. 
And Jesus had, of course, promised this. It was precisely this that they were waiting for. He said, don't leave Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and then you'll be baptized or immersed in the Holy Spirit, and you'll have power to go and be my witnesses. And so it took 10 days, and then the Spirit came. And their experience of the Holy Spirit involved three things. It involved sound and sight and speech. So first sound, the disciples heard something. Verse 2, suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Now, not, not wind, but the sound of a wind. That is, they heard something, and they would have immediately identified what they heard with the Holy Spirit. For in both the Hebrew language, which is the language of the Old Testament, and the Greek language, which is the language of the New Testament, the words wind and breath and spirit are the same word. So in Genesis 1, for example, in the creation account, the wind or breath or the spirit of God is hovering over the waters. And the wind or breath or spirit of God represented the power of God. Specifically, God's power to give life and being to something. So again, at creation, you have the Spirit of God over the waters as the creation account begins, and then God brings into being land and sky and mountain and sun and stars and plants and living creatures. In Ezekiel 37, Ezekiel's famous vision of the Valley of Dry Bones, Ezekiel is brought to a valley filled with dry human Bones, No life, no hope of life. It's one of the many biblical pictures of what sin does to us. And God says to Ezekiel, now tell me something. Do you think that these bones can live again? And Ezekiel says, Lord, only you know. And then God tells Ezekiel, prophesy to these bones. Tell them, God says, I will make you live and give you the breath of life. And Ezekiel speaks that word, and there's a rat, it's, it's kind of a creepy chapter. There's a rattling sound, and the bones come together in the right order, and sinews and muscles show up, and they get covered with skin and with flesh. But they remain lifeless. They're corpses. And then God says to Ezekiel, Now prophesy to the breath or the wind, and say, Come, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they might live. And Ezekiel speaks that word to the breath, and the Spirit of God sweeps in, and the breath of life comes into these corpses, and they become living beings, a vast army, the Scripture says. And then God interprets what Ezekiel has just seen. And God says, essentially, these bones... These are my people, Israel. They're hopeless. They're cut off from me. But I will raise them up from their graves, God says. I will bring them back and I will put my spirit within you and you shall live. That's God's word to his people. This prophecy of Ezekiel is being fulfilled at Pentecost. God is creating a new Israel, as we heard last week, whose identity is God's people is not centered in their national heritage, but in their relationship to Jesus. And this new community of God's people, God is now putting his spirit within them. Now that's, 
that's important. Before, God had placed his law outside of his people, giving them a shot at conforming to his character by trying to live up to the law, trying to perform, trying to keep God's rules. But all that the law did, exactly what God intended it to do, was to reveal that by human effort, people cannot earn the title God's people. And so instead of giving life to them, relationship to God, the law actually brought death, separation. So God said, you know what? I will give you life. I will put myself within you. Instead of you having, instead of you having to try to reach toward me, I will put myself within you. I will change you from the inside out and not just have you try to conform from the outside in. And that's what happened. That's the picture in Ezekiel, and that's what happens at Pentecost. Because the spirit of God is the spirit of life. There's no spiritual life apart from God's Holy Spirit. And the spirit of God gives life where he wills. And though the spirit of God is in the church, the church does not direct the spirit. In John 3, Jesus said to Nicodemus, the wind Spirit, same word, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. There is a mystery, there is an unharnessability to the Spirit. The wind has power that is available to us. If we set our sails to it, we can move across the waters. If we set up a windmill, we can access its energy. It can refresh like a breeze. It can destroy like a hurricane. You can't see it, but you can see what it does as it bends the trees. You can feel it, but you can't control it. You can't box up the wind and use it at your convenience. It blows where it wills. And the best that we can do is cooperate with it. And so it is with God's Holy Spirit. You can see when he's present. You can see the effects of what he's doing. You can see where he's in action. But you can't command him or package him so that he shows up on our schedule and does the things that we think he should do. The Spirit blows where he wills, not where we will. Now, Jesus once said, I have come that they might have life to the full. So the, the church, the community of Jesus, would be a community of life, of life to the full. And if the church is going to become the vehicle by which God moves people from death to life, it will only be because the life-giving power of the Spirit of God would be present and active in that church. And the coming of the wind, the breath, the Spirit of God at Pentecost signified that reality. The life-giving power of God by his spirit in the community of God's people. They heard a sound, the sound of wind. The second sign was what they saw. They saw fire. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Again, not real fire, obviously. But the appearance of fire. And again, it separated and rested on each person. And if the wind represents the power of God, fire was always associated with the presence of God. When Moses encountered God in the bush, it was a burning bush. 
When God led his people through the wilderness, it was by a pillar of fire. When God descended on Mount Sinai in the presence of all the people, he descended on Mount Sinai in fire. And so here at Pentecost, God comes to the disciples and is manifested to them by the appearance of fire. And the fire separates and rests on each one. I love that. It's a beautiful picture of equality in the church. Everyone could see that everyone else had the Spirit of God on them. The 12 apostles didn't have the presence of God to the exclusion of the others. The men didn't to the exclusion of the women. Jesus' mother and brothers didn't have the presence of God to the exclusion of the others in the room. There was no place for pride. Now that's significant because as you read through the Gospels, you notice that the followers of Jesus were always concerned with who was going to be the greatest in God's kingdom. But where the Spirit of God comes, that concern vanishes. They saw that God had rested on each one of them. Now, please don't think that when the presence of God, when the Spirit of God comes in such a fashion, that it is always a nice or a feel-good experience. For the Spirit of God is the Holy Spirit of God. And if the power of God is a life-giving power, the presence of God is a purifying or refining presence. Fire throughout the scripture is routinely used as a picture of God's twin act of judging and refining, judging the wicked, refining his own people. When John the Baptist announced the coming of Jesus, he spoke of Jesus sending the Holy Spirit. And he spoke of that in the context of fire and of judgment. This is what John said of Jesus. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. See, when the Spirit of God comes, he brings conviction. He judges sin. Sin gets uncomfortable. When God is present by his Spirit in your life, you will see an increased love on one hand for what is right and what is good, an increased commitment to holiness. You will also increasingly recognize and come to hate sinful patterns in your life. You will notice apathy. You will notice anger and lust and greed and shallowness, and you'll be compelled to turn from it. When the Holy Spirit is in your life, you will have an increased awareness of and care for the poor. You'll see an increase in joy and patience and generosity and compassion. You will have a greater, deeper love for Jesus and the accompanying greater obedience to Jesus. Your character will change as an individual because the Holy Spirit at work in you is a refining presence. And that's true for the church as a whole as well. One of the signs that the Holy Spirit of God is at work in a church is a transformation of the personality and values of the whole church. And we're beginning to see that here again. I love the song, Revive us again, fill each heart with thy love, may each soul be rekindled with fire from above. I think that that is happening in our midst in these days.
evidence that God is at work here by his Holy Spirit. So they saw, they heard the wind, they saw the fire, and both wind and fire would have been to them obvious symbols or representations of the Holy Spirit of God. And they would have known that as a fulfillment of Jesus' promise. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. So they heard wind, they saw fire. The third sign of the coming of the Holy Spirit was speech. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Okay, they spoke in other tongues or other languages, languages that they didn't know. In the Old Testament, when the Holy Spirit came on someone in power, it was almost always for prophecy, for the declaration of the word of the Lord. Well, that's the case here too. The crowd that assembles makes this astonished comment. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. So the Spirit who is the life-giving power of God, the Spirit who is the purifying presence of God, is also the Spirit of the proclamation or declaration of the Word of God. So the disciples immediately, filled with the Spirit, begin declaring the mighty works of God and certainly the mighty work that God had done in raising Jesus from the dead, which was a subject of all of their preaching and acts. And again, it just became natural for them to begin to speak. Again, as Peter said, we can't help but speak of what we've seen and heard because the Holy Spirit, see, is all about Jesus. And where the Holy Spirit is present and active, God's people are increasingly compelled to proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ, not just in preaching, but in conversation. And this proclamation of Jesus then has power, divine power. And so it's not just natural, it is effective. And before this day of Pentecost is over, 3,000 people will have repented of sin, turned to Christ for forgiveness, and been baptized. Because the Spirit not only empowered the proclamation of the word, it empowered the listening as well. Acts 2.37, when they heard the word of the Lord, they were cut to the heart. Not because Peter was a great preacher, not even because what he said was true. But because the Holy Spirit took the truth as it was preached by Peter and penetrated it deep into the hearts of those who were listening to bring conviction. And that's the only way the word of God ever bears fruit. The word and the spirit of God go together. And the church that naturally and effectively makes Jesus known is not so much the church that operates in the power of the spirit, but the church in which the spirit operates through the church. And there's a distinction there, so I'm going to say that again. The church